0: Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Well, the good news is, is we're already in part three of our series, Galatians Unearthed. You remember last week, we ended off at the Jerusalem Council, right? The court had been seated. Everyone who needed to be at this hearing was there. The apostles, the elders, the ecclesia, the assembly... Everyone was there. The court was seated, so to speak. And what did we see? We saw Peter. A testimony was brought forth. A witness. He was brought forth. And the court heard him. And Peter raises his voice and he tells them all the things that the Gentiles, are, that, are, that the Lord is doing with the Gentiles. How this anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh was falling down upon them. And you actually go back and you read that account where Peter has this interaction and it actually says the men that were with them, these Jewish men that were with Peter, they marveled. They couldn't believe what was happening. It was so awesome. It's not the expectation of what they... I mean, that gift was for Israel. No Jew in their right mind even thought for a second that this was going to be extended to the Gentiles. After Peter gets done... With his discourse, giving his testimony. Paul and Barnabas, they rise up. They give their testimony. And they tell basically what Peter told them. All these amazing signs and wonders that they saw the Lord doing amongst the Gentiles. And then last, but not least, pun intended, we have James rise up. He rises up, not so much to give a testimony, but to render judgment. To actually propose a resolution. What do we do in this circumstance? And what does he state? I declare it we should not trouble the Gentiles who are in that epistrepho, epistrefus, and they are they're turning to God. In other words, these Gentiles are not required to become circumcised as they're turning into the faith. It's not required. Then he goes on and says, but this is required. And it gives basically two specific commandments, food laws and pornea, sexual and morality laws. As defined, the only way you can define it, as found in the Torah itself, which brings us to where we're at today. And we're going to continue on in verse 22, and this is what we read. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company, now look at this, to Antioch. That's quite apropos, don't you think? Because where did the controversy begin? It began in Antioch. But now they're selecting chosen men to go back to Antioch, as we read, with Paul and Barnabas. Namely, Judas, who was also named Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. I want you to appreciate exactly what the apostles are doing here. See, they know how delicate... This situation really is. They know how strongly their Jewish brethren feel about this. They know what the Torah says in Genesis 17. They know all these factors. They're not taking any chances. What has been ruled in Jerusalem, they are going to ensure is going to be imposed upon the rest of the world. Beginning at Antioch, they send Judas and Silas along with Paul and Barnabas. Why is that a big deal? Because if you read the book of Acts, you actually discover Judas and Silas, they're prophets. They are literally prophets of God. These are men of renown, men who have such great respect amongst their Jewish brethren. They are revered. There is no two better guys that you could possibly send... With Paul and Barnabas, then Judas and Silas, the apostles know this. This is a very strategic move on their part. Now as we continue, the council is going to put, we're going to see, they're going to put this James verdict in writing. Why would they put it in writing? Because it's legal proceeding. It's a legal document. When a a judge makes a decision on any particular case or a jury comes it's going to be documented. It's going to be in written form. And so now, this judgment that, is in, that happened in Acts 15, it's going to be legalized. It's going to be put down on paper. And here's what's fascinating. What we're about to read is the first epistle to the Galatians. The first known epistle to the Galatians. Verse 23. They wrote this letter by them. And here's the letter. The intro is the apostles the elders and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, in Cilicia, greetings, verse 24, since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, and then what are they saying? Saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. I want to draw your attention to the highlighted part. I debated about whether or not to get into this. Actually, in the last time I did this study, I didn't even go there because I just simply didn't want to. But this time around, we are going to go through this a little bit. There is a debate that you need to be aware of that exists out there. And I want you to be equipped. And I want you to be equipped on multiple levels. And what I'm saying here is going to make more sense as we go through this. Well, here's the situation. What I have highlighted, this whole, you must be circumcised and keep the law, there's a debate that this was actually added to the text. It was interpolated in later manuscripts. It didn't exist in the autograph, or it didn't exist in the earlier manuscripts. In fact, I can tell you just off a whim, I just pulled up 25 different translations of the Bible. And I could have pulled up more. There's more than that. But I pulled up 25 different translations of the Bibles. Uh, things like the ISV, the ESV, the Holman Christian Bible, the New English Translation, so on and so forth. King James, New King James. 25 of them, only 9 of them carry this actual statement within the text. Now here's the interesting thing. Of those 9, 3 of them are all King James affiliated. So really you have only 6 others that actually carry this text out of the 25 translations I looked at. All right? Most of them read this way. Let me put up the New American Standard. It says, Since we have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. So it's not even there. All right? You'll see it's missing, and many of the other ones read very, very closely to what you see there. You need to understand there is a war happening right now in uh, textual criticism. And this is the analyzing of the manuscripts and how should we translate, what manuscripts should we be utilizing for translation. And it's not a war that had ever ceased, but it's exploding more now than ever before. And I'm not going to go too deep into this, but I'm just going to give you enough so that you understand the war. And basically, you have the Byzantine text type, or you have the majority text people on this side. On this side, you have the critical text people, okay? Critical text. Many modern-day scholars are falling under the critical text. There are many modern-day scholars that believe that we should be looking at text type at all the manuscripts that are available to us including the oldest manuscripts, which are actually found in Alexandria. It's the oldest manuscripts we have, all right? And so they're looking at this. The problem with that is you have the majority texters, they're over here, and they're saying, well, we're not going to include the, 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 the Alexandrian text because we believe it's inferior. We believe there's omissions. We believe there is, you know, some foul play. Maybe Gnosticism as, has been alleged uh, by the, the majority text, and, and the, the many modern-day scholars today that are, are of the critical text, let's say, oh, that's, that's ridiculous. These are closer to the autographs than anything. And so their mentality is, is the closer back we can get to the original document, the purer, the translation. And you can see that. And, and there are many other debates that go back and forth and back and forth. Well, New American Standard would be part of the critical text. This would fall in that critical text side versus the New King James, which I always teach out of, would fall out of the TR, the Texas Receptus side, or the, or the majority text side by liberal extension. Okay, so you got to understand there why some of your translations read differently is because ultimately this war that is going on behind the scenes. All right? And so this, this exists. However, having said that in I'll even get deeper into this in a moment. Having said that, uh, all the different translations as I go and I look at uh, the New American Standard, and you put that up against the New King James, a perfect example of the two that are on the polar opposites of of this war. Um, I'm going to tell you right now, all the additions and subtractions and whatever you want to find, none of them affect doctrine. None of them. So I want to be very clear on something, because some people get so caught up in going, well, I, you know, I take into consideration the, the Alexandrian manuscripts, and you're an idiot. You're not acknowledging the full reality of uh, what we have found. And the other side is saying, well, those were totally corrupt texts, and they don't make up hardly any percentage of all the 5,000 manuscripts we have. They're just minute. Not just that, but geographically speaking, our textual tradition is everywhere. Whereas yours is isolated to Egypt alone. And so we could go back and forth. We could play this game. We could do this. At the end of the day, nothing affects theology. Nothing is affecting doctrine. Now you might say, well, Daniel, this certainly looks like it does. Well, let's just look at this for a second. I'm I'm just going to show you some commentary. And this this is right on the verse saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law. The oldest authorities omit the Greek of these words. What does it mean by the oldest authorities? Talking about manuscripts, not men. It's talking about the oldest authorities, manuscript authority. They omit these words, which looks somewhat like a marginal explanation that has crept in to the text. Oh, listen to this, especially as to keep the law is an expansion. Did you just hear what they said? So, the commentary is isolating this last part, and to keep the law. Not so much he be circumcised, but isolating to keep the law. It's clear that this has been an expansion, but look at what goes on to say. Though, of course, a correct one. Of the statement made in Acts 15, about the teaching that was given, listen carefully. Their circumcision alone is mentioned as the point on which disturbance was created. I'm going to read it again. Their circumcision alone is mentioned as the point on which the disturbance was created. You understand anything about what we are covering and about what is being rendered here in this verdict? Understand that statement. Because this person has correctly identified the problem. And I'm going to tell you, and this is going back to last week, I'm going to tell you this right now. If you do not accurately identify the problem that exists, you will never assess the conclusion that is given correctly. And a perfect example of this is Mark 7 and Matthew 15, which I mentioned. Many Christians believe when Yeshua says he declared all foods clean, that all of a sudden pork now magically becomes clean food to eat. And that's what was being debated. Go back To the problem. Go back to what the problem and the charge was. It wasn't the charge. The Pharisees didn't come and say. Hey your apostles are eating pig. What they said is they're eating bread. Bread with unwashed hands. That was the charge. You see how important it is to go back to the problem. To the charge. What is being alleged. That way I can correctly. When I get the conclusion comes out. I will have a correct assessment. I will understand it. Such is the problem here. Such is the problem with the Jerusalem council. With some people that look at this council and say, well, the Gentiles, has been declared to them, they don't need to do anything. They just keep these four things. This is how they look at it. They're looking at it that way because they're not understanding the charge. This commentary nailed it. The commentary nailed it. This is the charge. Let's go back to Acts 15, verse 1. And uh, this is what we read. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's the charge. We're not unclear on that. This is isolating one specific commandment within the Torah, and that is circumcision. Let me show you another commentary saying ye must be circumcised and keep the law, the ceremonial law. The Alexandrian copy and the Vulgate Latin and Ethiopic versions leave out this clause. So when you, you look at this, uh, this clause here, they're saying the Latin Vulgate leaves it out. Now that's, that is something that you need to step back and think about because if you don't know what the Latin Vulgate is, it was the reigning Bible for over a thousand years. It was the Bible. The Vulgate was the Latin Bible. I mean, there, was no new, there was no King James Bible. All those years, for over a thousand years, the Latin Vulgate was the Bible. And according to this commentary, this statement is omitted. It's not found there. It's not found in the Ethiopic versions. And of course, the Alexandrian, if we know the earliest manuscripts, it doesn't possess those either. Isn't that interesting? Now you might be thinking, well, Daniel, where do you stand on this? Well, i got to be honest with you. Whether it's included or not is irrelevant. And if you take anything away from this, you need to listen to me carefully. This is what you need to understand. Because, again, if you're going to get in a conversation about Galatians, you're going to get in a conversation about Gentiles, whether or not Christians should keep the Torah, you're going to be coming to the Jerusalem Council. And you need to have your arms wrapped around it in every angle. You need to be prepared and equipped. And so I got to be honest with you. It doesn't really matter if it's there or not. Why do I say that? Because here's what I don't do. I don't take one little passage of Scripture and isolate it and refuse to allow the other text of Scripture to speak. The only way you're going to have a problem with this is if you do that if you're an isolationist and I got to be honest with you. The problem that I've had, when I've getting in conversations with people, and they're doctrinally super confused, uh, what I have found is this situation. They have become isolationists. They have isolated parts of Scripture and refuse to listen to the totality of the testimony. All right? Go back to Acts 15.1. We know the charge. I can't possibly understand this without this the charge is specific it's the last unless you are circumcised now catch this though according to the custom of moses in other words these men that are going out they're not going out expressing their own opinion you know i really think you should all mutilate yourselves cut yourselves i think this would be a great a great idea no they're coming the precedent has been set in the torah The the power is coming from the Torah, and therefore they're saying, the Torah says, therefore you must do it. And that makes a lot of sense. If you're not listening to the rest of the word, and to the fact that Isaiah 43, the Lord's going to do a new thing with the Gentiles, if I'm refusing the prophets, refusing what the Holy Spirit has done, and refusing what I am witnessing with my own eyes, that the Lord is circumcising the Gentiles with a circumcision made without hands, yeah, then that makes perfect sense makes perfect sense and so there's a there's a lot of power here so i would not understand this in the context without the charge and so when you read it in this context leave it in leave it in and saying you must be circumcised because that's what they were saying i'm okay with that and keep the law i would only understand and keep the law within the context of the circumcision itself In fact, what you will find is Paul uses the terms transposably, circumcision, and law at times. Read the book of Romans. He does this. So if I understand it in that context of what they're doing, the premise of why they're telling the Gentiles you have to be circumcised, it is the law. Does that make sense to you? Let's take it a step further. And understand and letting the broader context of the word speak So that we understand what is being communicated. What did I quote last week? I quoted this verse. For not the hearers of the Torah are just in the sight of God. But the doers of the Torah will be justified. This epistle is written to Gentiles. Think about this. The epistle is written to Gentiles. And what is Paul stating? Only the doers of the Torah will be justified. Does it sound like he threw away the law? Does that sound like what was rendered in Acts 15? Absolutely not. What was dealt with in Acts 15 is circumcision. Romans 3.31 Do we then make void the law through faith? And I always say this. It's the million dollar question. Every one of you should have this verse committed to memory. If you call yourself a Torah observant believer in Yeshua, this must be committed to memory because when you go talk with your Christian friends and family, this is the question. What are Christians supposed to do with the Torah after they come in faith into faith with Yeshua? The ultimate question do we make it void? Because that's what's being taught today. But what does Paul say? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the Torah. And literally in the Greek, it means to stand, histemi, to stand on the Torah because it's foundational. It's the rocks, the firm foundation of which you will be built upon through faith in Christ. And, And he's actually, Paul's actually drawing directly from the Torah itself. Deuteronomy 27, 26 actually says, Cursed is everyone who does not stand on all the words of this law. This is what he says. So, does it sound like the Torah is done away with? I mean, again, this is an epistle to the Gentiles. Of course not. So when it comes to the verdict, depending on, you know, whatever translation you're siding with, and you're, you're getting in involved into that, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. If you're in the New King James, if you're reading the King James, you have to understand that passage from the totality of the word. Amen? All right, moving on to verse 25. It seemed good to us having become of one mind. Now this is critical. Because he's relating to something. We're not divided on this matter. I mean, any community that you go to, if you have leadership that is divided and you're seeing a pattern, that's a scary thing. That's not the pattern we find in Scripture. Leadership should be a chad, it should be completely a chad. And they mentioned we are of one mind. So, of one mind to select men to send to you with. Our beloved Barnabas and Paul. And I love the fact that he takes the time to say our beloved Barnabas and Paul. In other words, the Sanhedrin, this new Sanhedrin, guess what? They adore Barnabas and Paul. They are giving them, as we're going to see later today, the right hand of fellowship. Men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Yeshua HaMashiach. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth, moving to verse 28. For it seemed good to us, no, it says first to the Holy Spirit, and then it says, and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. How brilliant is this? To lay this out in this epistle, this written legal document, that the glory and the understanding of this verdict first goes to the Ruach HaKodesh, it goes to the Holy Spirit. The ultimate authority in the matter. They don't put themselves first. They said first to the Holy Spirit and then to us. What does this tell you about this verdict? And I keep building on this for the last couple weeks. You need to understand the power and the authority of what was done in Jerusalem. And so the Holy Spirit into us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. And he gets into these. That you abstain from things sacrificed to idols. From blood. From things strangled and from fornication, if you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Is again, what we communicated last week, first purify the temple. If you first purify the temple, you will do well. The Holy Spirit will be with you. And it's a guide, it's a witness, it's a teacher, it's a helper. It will tell you of things to come. He teaches us. So this is very, very important. So looking at this, what we have here is the first epistle to the Galatians. Very short and obviously to the point. One more thing before we break into Paul's epistle to the Galatians. For those of you who were really paying attention, you might be scratching your head in regard to this epistle actually being given to the Galatians or addressed to the Galatians. Because if you go back, it says to the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Well, how do you determine that this is for the Galatians? They weren't even mentioned. Well, hold on. As we continue in Acts, I'm going to show this. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Jumping ahead. 16 verse 1. Then he came to Derby and Lystra. So this is what they did. They go back and where is Derby and Lystra? It's in the province of Galatia. This is where they're at. In verse 4, And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders in line. Okay? And this was all done, remember, by the hand of Paul. To let the Gentiles know that they didn't need to be circumcised when they're saved, but they must do these essential things, implement them immediately. So here's the thing. We know with absolute certainty that the Galatians possessed the truth. That they possessed the verdict that was rendered in Jerusalem. And you need to have this to really appreciate as we break into this letter. Number one, Paul's frustration. You're going to see such, you've never seen such frustration. I mean, you can read 1 Corinthians and you see some serious frustration from the Apostle Paul. But not like this. This is on a completely different level of what we're going to see. With that said, this landscape uh, painted, if you will, all laid out. Let's enter into this epistle. Galatians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man, but through Yeshua Mashiach and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, in this introduction, you'll notice that Paul says something that he doesn't include in any other epistle. There's something unique alone to Galatians. And that is this statement. Not from man nor through man. In other words, the first thing that Paul is establishing is his credibility, his testimony. You better take note of me, Galatians, who I am and how I came into the faith. This is critical. Take note. Now he's going to go on in verse 2. All the brethren who are with me. To the churches of Galatia. Grace to you in peace. And I love this. From God the Father and our Lord Yeshua HaMashiach. This is very traditional. For the Apostle Paul. In his introductions. To do this. To explicitly show. The unity. The Ahadness, if you will. The oneness of the Father. And the Son. He never misses this opportunity. Think of it. Paul, <clears throat> who is a Jew, grew up literally singing the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Lahani, Adonai, Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is one. He is declaring the Shema right in his introduction. This is so powerful. And not just that, go to Zechariah. Bayom Hahu, ye yeh Adonai Echad. And on that day, he will be one. His name is one. Ushmo Echad. I mean, this is the declaration. Read John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, Yeshua says, I and my father are Echad. And what did they do? They picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. Because you being a man, you made yourself God. And so this introduction is powerful. You go through all of Paul's epistles. He never wastes a moment to declare the Shema. What is the oneness? What is this oneness? It's a passage of clarification. And this is a cry. The Shema is a cry out to the Jewish people to acknowledge the Son. And not just acknowledge that that He is one with the Father. Powerful. Verse 4. Who gave Himself for our sins that He might deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To whom be the glory forever and ever. They are working in perfect unity. Yeshua came to redeem us. He is the salvation of the world. But it's according to his father's will. Perfect unity. Perfectly echad. Now. As we continue. uh, We are going to see that Paul doesn't waste any time. Uh, He gives these greetings. And now he's going to get down to business. And he's going to inflict... Some of the most serious rebuke you've ever seen. He's Very harsh. In verse 6 we read, I marvel. The first thing that he says is I marvel. And I got to tell you that makes me marvel. Because think about the things that the Apostle Paul has seen. Think about the things that the Apostle Paul has experienced. Think about who he literally talked to. In Acts 9, where he literally, Yeshua himself, the resurrected Lord, showed himself in his glory, knocked him off his animal. He went blind. He talked to him. Think about all these things. And now you're telling me he's marveling? In other words, what I'm telling you, to get this man to marvel is an awesome thing. Unfortunately, it's not a good awesome in this situation. So he says, I marvel that you are what? turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Mashiach to a different gospel. Harshest rebuke that you could give anyone. What did he just say? He just called their salvation into question. Who does Paul think he is? Could you imagine being the Galatians? Sitting there, we received a letter from the Apostle Paul. Everybody gather around. And they start to read in the introduction. Oh, it's just beautiful. It's wonderful. And you get right immediately to verse 6. And he says, you guys have walked out of salvation. You guys are walking away from the Lord. You're walking into death. He just called their salvation into question. There's nothing worse he could say right here. I mean, that's where you put the epistle down and freak out. I mean, right? What do you mean we're not saved? What are you talking about? Well, what's going on here? Well, he says, they're turning away. What are they turning away to? A different gospel. Well, let me ask you, what does that mean? Does that mean they've turned back to pagan idols? That they're following false gods? Are they taking the Oprah Winfrey way? Which, uh, all there's many ways to God? Unfortunately, no. That's not what they're doing. Look at what Paul says, the very next statement. Which is not another. In other words, Christ is still the center. In other words, he's still being deemed the Messiah. We're still out to follow him. He's the savior of the world. It's not another gospel. How frightening is this? To show this level of deception and salvation is on the line, yet they're still confessing Yeshua as Lord. Think about the implications of this statement. This is terrifying. So he says, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you. And want to pervert the gospel of Mashiach. So this is the issue. The gospel is getting perverted. It's being transformed into something it's not. There's false heresy. There's false doctrine coming in. But what is that perversion? What's this perversion that Paul is talking about? Interestingly enough, we're actually given the answer right here in the verse. What's this say? I'll highlight it. There are some who trouble you. It's important to point out here that these words that Paul is speaking and in this context would have resonated with the Galatians. And why do I say that? I say that because they've heard this language before. They've actually heard this language before. Where have they heard this language? Well, Acts 15, 24. This is the head of the document, the first epistle that went out to the Galatians. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words. Does this sound familiar? He's saying the exact same thing. These men who are perverting the gospel of Mashiach, they're troubling the Galatians. They're the very same men that were dealt with in Jerusalem. There were very same men that Paul and Barnabas had to go up against in uh, Antioch. Let me ask you the question, what was the problem then? Circumcision. What does that tell you about what Paul is saying to the Galatians? It tells you that the Galatians are giving in. They're giving in to these men. They're giving in to a corrupt teaching. And they are now becoming circumcised for salvation. This is what's happening. You want to know what this epistle is all about? This is what it's about. It is all about circumcision and the fact that they're doing this. Now, having said this, I want to throw something at you, and you need to listen to me very, very carefully, because this is something that so many people, they don't acknowledge. It goes right over their head. And this is important, because it has to do with what the Gent- how the Gentiles viewed the Torah in the first century. Let me ask you a question. Why were the Galatians so inclined to get circumcised? Why were they so inclined? Let's be honest, men. If you existed in the first century, and there were Jews running around telling you uh, that you need to get circumcised as a grown adult, uh, you're not running to do that. You're not looking to do that. That's not fun. You don't have circumcision parties. They don't exist in the first century. You won't find them. Okay. In other words, what I'm saying, there's absolutely no motivation in any man who is in his right mind to want to cut himself like that. None. Oh, unless what? The Torah says so. You understand where I'm going with this? This is so critical. These men that were coming in, they were leveraging the love, the reverence, the fear, the care, that these Galatians had for the Torah. That's the only way they could get them to do this. And so, this whole concept that the first century Gentiles, they believe that the Torah was totally done away with, they had no affinity for it at all, it's blown out of the water just by what's happening. That doesn't work. Because the only way they would actually fall into this is if they loved the Torah. These men were very clever. The enemy is very clever. Have we ever heard of the enemy, the enemy taking the Torah and manipulating it? Yes, we have. You saw that wilderness experience with Yeshua and Hasatan. Hasatan went to war against Yeshua with the Torah. He used scripture against him. He used the prophets against him. And Yeshua responded with the Torah. He responded with the prophets. Isn't that an interesting scenario? Because that's exactly what happened at the council. You have perverted men coming out. They're misunderstanding what's going on. They're misunderstanding the Torah itself and what the prophets have said. And James' response is the Torah and the prophets. He responds with scripture to support his verdict. Absolutely amazing. I want to be clear on something. The reverence that the Galatians have for the Torah is not the problem. It's the interpretation. It's the interpretation. Moving on to verse 8. But even if we, or, listen to this, an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Again, the, the language that Paul uses here, I mean, by the time you get to verse 8, if you're, if you're in Galatians, you've fallen down. Because now Paul's coming out so strong and saying, not even just us, even if we, we already preached the truth to you, but if we come back and we preach something else, we're to be cut off. We're to be literally accursed, anathema in the Greek, reserved for hellfire, reserved for judgment. But he doesn't even stop there. He actually says if an angel of God comes down from heaven and preaches to you something other than what you have received, you are to be killed, accursed. Those of you who know the Torah know how know how egregious this really is, and you understand exactly where Paul is coming from. And what do I mean by that? I want to take you back. Do you remember Deuteronomy 17? Annie, if there's a matter of controversy, you're to go up to Yerushalayim, to the judges, to the Sanhedrin, and they're to declare to you a verdict. I want to take you back there. I want to show you something so that you can appreciate exactly what Paul is talking about here. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 11. According to the sentence of the Torah in which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do. Period. They render this verdict, you shall do it. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounce upon you. Okay, verse 12. Now the man who acts presumptuously, oh, and will not heed... The priest, the Kohen, who stands to minister there before the Lord your God, or the judge, which think about the apostles and elders. They were what? They were all priests and judges at this new Sanhedrin. In fact, you can read Exodus stating that Israel would be a nation of priests. Peter himself quotes this to his own brethren in his first epistle, that they are priests and they are judges. And if you don't listen to them. What's it say? That man shall die. Accursed. He is to be accursed. You shall put away the evil from Israel. You understand where Paul's coming from? It's interesting that Paul and the premise of these words come directly from the Torah. We gave you the verdict in Yerushalayim, it's been rendered unto you, but you're not listening to it. Therefore, anyone who comes and preaches something else that we have rendered, let him be cut off. Totally accursed. Verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, oh, let him be accursed. He repeats himself twice, something that you will find Yeshua doing in his teachings. This is something Paul does all the time. Why do they do that? Emphasis. Emphasis. It's established. The statement is established. That's where you stand back. When when, When you hear them repeating things twice, that's when you step back. Selah. Let it soak in. Meditate on it. Verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Here we go again. Paul's drawing right back to where how he started this epistle. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Yeshua HaMashiach. Through the, you can read this in Acts 9. This, this very revelation is recorded in Acts 9. Moving on. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, verse 14. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Again, going back to what we covered last week, Paul was a Pharisee of all Pharisees. And here he brings out the fact, no, I went beyond my contemporaries. He was the elite among his brethren. Verse 15. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I love this. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. You think about that statement. So, knocked off his animal, gone blind, had a conversation with the risen Lord, saw his glory... Notice he didn't walk around and say, hey, you know, hey, could you guys come over here? I got to tell you about my experience I had. It was pretty wonderful. Um, the Lord's calling me into the ministry. What do you think about that? Do you think I should go? Do you think I should actually do this? Do you think do you think it was authentic? There was no questions. He wasn't asking men. He didn't care what any man thought. He knew what he had in experience. The Lord Himself talked to him. It's over for the Apostle Paul. I'm done. I don't need you to come and tell me that, yeah, I think it's a good idea, or it's not. He didn't need it. In fact, so much so, we continue. Look at what he says next. Nor did I go up to Yerushalayim, to those who were apostles before me. Think about that statement. I mean, the greatest of the great were in Yerushalayim. Peter, James, John, the great, the pillars of the church. And he didn't even feel compelled to go up there. Because he, they, they, how could they establish something Yeshua himself already established, right? Verse 18. Then after three years, oh, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. Now that time was coming. And I do like this when you look at this. Paul's first ascent to Jerusalem, after he comes into the faith, he tells us explicitly, it's to go see Peter. I think that's... I think that's valuable information because there is a special unity, if you will, a special brotherhood that exists between Paul and Peter. There is. We're going to see that later on in this epistle. Not this week, but next week. And remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. And going to verse 21 afterward I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea which were in Mashiach but they were hearing only you know I like some of the other translations they actually they were they they actually flip-flop those and they would say only hearing and I like that better because in other words what it's saying is that this is all they were talking about This is all that was being said. What was that? He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. They couldn't believe it. This is all they could ever talk about. This is all that the ears were hearing. The one who's destroyed the faith, look at him, he's come into the faith. Unbelievable. Unbelievable testimony. Going on to chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Yerushalayim with barnabas and i also took titus with me and i went up by revelation or because of revelation a a response to a revelation what was that revelation it was what god was doing with the gentiles and how they were receiving the gift of the holy spirit how they were being circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and he goes on and he says and communicated to them That gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. What is Paul describing here? I mean, this whole, this discourse right here, 1 and 2, Acts 15. He's literally telling you what happened in Acts 15 from his account, not Luke's account. This is now the apostle Paul's account. Let me take you back there, Acts 15, verse 2. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension dispute with them, they determined that, oh, Paul and Barnabas, and I love this, and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. See, when we first read it, without what we're going to have in a second, we just blow by that it doesn't even stick out at you. But it sticks out now. Luke records there were other people that went up with Paul and Barnabas. Well, this is interesting. The apostle Paul actually names one of these certain others by name. What does he call him? Let's go back. Then after 14 years, I went up against Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me. Titus. He's one of these other ones, okay? Paul is bringing Titus into the mix. As we continue, you're going to understand why. Verse 3. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Think about this. What is this epistle all about? It's all about circumcision. See, when you read this, if you didn't know that it was all about circumcision, why would Paul even bring this up? Why would he even talk about Titus the fact he wasn't compelled to be circumcised? But what a brilliant thing to do. Because this letter is all about circumcision. He's talking to Gentiles who are falling into a a falsehood. So he brings a Gentile to the table. And not just any Gentile. If you went through the Titus series, he's a titan, a powerhouse of the faith. Fascinating thing about it all, Titus was in the midst of that war. I want you to think about that. This war that ensued early on in Acts 15 that was erupting in Antioch, Titus was there. And Paul's making the point that not even Titus, who was in the midst of this battle, he saw us going toe-to-toe, not even he was compelled to be circumcised. This was the problem in Galatia. This is the problem. Identify the problem. Now, Paul is going to go on to describe these men who came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Listen to how he describes them, because this is the Acts 15 account, but in Paul's words. And he says, and this occurred because false brethren. You want to know what Paul thought of these men that came down and were going toe-to-toe with him and Barnabas? He calls them false brethren, secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Messiah Yeshua, that they might bring us into bondage. Oh, to whom we did not yield submission for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Not for a moment did they back down. Titus is in their midst. Not for a moment was he compelled to be circumcised. Paul is pulling out every possible stop he could to bring the Galatians to a right set of mind. He's doing everything in his power to do this. Now, continuing on. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something, added nothing to me. Verse 7. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who effectively worked in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And so, in other words, what Paul is saying is, Peter was set out for his particular ministry. And that was to the Jewish people. Paul was set out for a particular purpose. That was to the Gentiles. Now, I want to be clear on something. And scripturally, we can support both of this this, this statement here. That didn't mean Peter didn't preach to the Gentiles, because he did. He's the first apostle to the Gentiles. And that didn't mean that Paul did not bring the gospel to the Jew first, because he did. Over and over again, we see this testimony in Scripture. But the primary focus of the ministry, their fruit... That they would inherit would be Paul's, primarily Gentile. Peter's would be primarily Jewish. All right? Verse 9. And when James, Cephas, and John... Now, I want to just... I don't see this as coincidental, but rather intentional. Notice Paul names James first. Well, that makes sense because he's the Nazi. He is the prince of the court. And he names James, Cephas, and John who seemed to be pillars. You look at this in the Greek, this decao right here, who seemed. It's a personal reflection. And in other words, this is personally what Paul thought, not just what others thought, but this is personally internally what he thought seemed to be pillars. Paul acknowledged as uh, James, Peter, and John as pillars of the church, okay? He perceived that They perceived the grace that had been given to me. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. I want you to understand something. This concept of the right hand of fellowship, this is not simply, Oh, Peter, James, and John, they're, they're going out, we'll bless you. Bless you in the name of the Lord, go in peace, go, you know, go preach to the Gentiles. That's not what the right hand of the fellowship is. The right hand of the fellowship is, we stand with you. We interlock our shields with you. We are your brothers in war. And we are completely unified in the work that the Lord is sending you out to do. And the things that you are preaching. Critical to understand that Paul has the right hand of fellowship. And it's not just Paul's testimony that is doing this. Read the book of Acts. Read Luke's testimony. This is an external source showing exactly what Paul's saying. It's true. They have, the right, they have the right hand of fellowship, him and Barnabas, him and Silas. Now, we're going to go one more verse and we'll close. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing that I was also eager to do. Yeah, this was already in Paul's heart. In fact, I'll take it a step further. It wasn't just in Paul's heart, but all the Gentiles that were coming into the faith. Read Romans 15. Read those of Macedonia, those of Achaia. They took up a contribution for the poor that were in Jerusalem. And Paul commends them, and he goes beyond that. And he says, this is a good thing, because if you have reaped their spiritual gifts, you are now to minister to them in physical gifts. Minister them into their physical needs, those who are poor in Jerusalem. And nothing has changed. These are all legitimate things. Everything we're talking about, this is concrete to the faith, even uh, to this day. Amen?